From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We need the treaty of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons as much as ever. As the UN Secretary General warns of possible nuclear annihilation, we look at the growing threat of nuclear war as tensions escalate between the United States and two other nuclear powers, Russia and China. We'll also look at why the head of the UN Atomic Energy Agency is warning the situation at Ukraine's largest nuclear power plant is completely out of control. Russia is using the plant as a shield to attack Ukrainian forces. Plus, we look at why the American right is embracing Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban, who just met with Donald Trump and is addressing CPAC today, the Conservative Political Action Conference. This all comes just days after Orban delivered a racist speech that drew comparisons to the Nazis. We cannot accept in any way the kind of communications that includes talking about races, few races, and mixing of races. Within the Jewish community, this evokes a very painful era and painful memories. One longtime aide to Orban resigned, describing his remarks as a, quote, pure Nazi text worthy of Goebbels. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Northern California, the death toll from the McKinney fire has risen to four after authorities found the remains of two more victims Wednesday. Slow-moving thunderstorms have slowed the spread of the blaze, which has consumed 57,000 acres. But the rain triggered local flooding and shifted concerns to the threat of mudslides. This comes as the northeastern United States is baking under a heat wave that threatens to—that is threatening to um, top records across the northeast. In Washington, D.C., seven U.S. veterans and their allies were arrested outside the U.S. Capitol Wednesday as they protested the military's role in driving the climate crisis. A 2017 study found the Pentagon emits more greenhouse gases than many of the world's countries, including Sweden and Portugal. On Wednesday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres slammed oil and gas company Greed, saying governments should tax profits made after Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed fuel prices to new highs. Guterres said the largest fossil fuel companies earned nearly $100 billion in profits during the first quarter of this year alone. I urge people everywhere to send a clear message to the fossil fuel industry and their financiers that this grotesque greed is punishing the poorest and most vulnerable people while destroying our only common home, the planet. On Capitol Hill, Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema has signaled she wants changes to a budget reconciliation bill containing many of President Biden's legislative priorities on energy, taxes and health care. In a private call with Arizona's Chamber of Commerce Tuesday, Sinema questioned part of the Inflation Reduction Act that would impose a 15 percent minimum tax on corporations. Sinema also questioned a provision to close the carried interest Loophole, which taxes private equity and hedge fund managers at lower rates than most U.S. workers. 
Meanwhile, environmentalists are sounding the alarm over billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies that oil and gas companies would receive as part of the compromise deal agreed to last week by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. On Wednesday, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders said he'll offer amendments that would strip out a requirement tying new investments in green energy to mandatory lease sales of millions of acres of public lands to oil and and gas companies. In my view, if we are going to make our planet healthy and habitable for future generations, we cannot provide billions of dollars in new tax breaks to the very same fossil fuel companies that are currently destroying the planet. The U.S. Senate has voted to add Finland and Sweden to NATO in a major expansion of the military alliance and the first since North Macedonia joined NATO in 2020. Wednesday's Senate vote was 95 to 1, with only Missouri Senator Josh Hawley voting no. All 30 NATO members are expected to complete the ratification of Finland and Sweden by the end of the year. Indonesia, Australia and Japan have begun joint combat exercises with the United States on the island of Sumatra. Though the drills are held annually, these are the largest ever and come just after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which China condemned as a provocation. Earlier today, China's military fired several ballistic missiles into the waters around Taiwan as it began large-scale air and naval drills near the self-governing island, which China considers part of its territory. President Biden signed an executive order to help patients seeking abortions to travel to states that still allow the procedure. Biden signed the order as Senate Republicans blocked a Democratic bill to protect abortion care providers from violent threats and attacks. Meanwhile, Georgia's Department of Revenue said this week it'll allow state residents to claim fetuses and embryos as dependents, a tax deduction worth up to $3,000. In June, a federal appeals court upheld a Georgia law defining a developing embryo as a person as soon as fetal cardiac cells begin activity, typically around six weeks of pregnancy. In Indiana, Republican Congress member Jackie Walorski and two members of her staff were killed in a head-on collision on Wednesday. The driver of the other car was also pronounced dead at the scene. Walorski served on the House Ways and Means Committee and was seeking re-election to a sixth term in November's midterm election. She was 58 years old. In Guanajuato, Mexico, journalist and businessman Ernesto Mendez was shot and killed Tuesday night, along with two other people, after gunmen stormed a liquor store he owned and opened fire. Mendez ran the online news source Your Voice, had previously reported threats. He's the 13th media worker to be killed in Mexico this year alone. In Austin, Texas far-right conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host Alex Jones admitted from the witness stand Wednesday that the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, was real. Jones' admission came at his civil trial, where he faces a $150 million defamation lawsuit from families of schoolchildren killed at Sandy Hook. For years, Jones spread conspiracy theories that the Newtown shooting was a government hoax and the victims' families were paid actors, resulting in online harassment and death threats for Sandy Hook families. The 2012 massacre claimed the lives of 20 schoolchildren and six educators. 
This week, Scarlett Lewis, whose six-year-old son, Jesse, was among the 20 children killed in the massacre, confronted Alex Jones from the witness stand. I wanted to tell you to your face, because I wanted you to know that I am a mother, first and foremost, and I know that you're a father, and my son existed. You're still on your show today trying to say that I'm... Uh, implying that I'm an actress. This week, lawyers for the Sandy Hook families revealed Alex Jones' attorneys sent them every text message Jones sent for the past two years, apparently by mistake. On Wednesday, the House committee investigating the Capitol insurrection signaled it may subpoena Jones' messages as it investigates his contacts with planners of the January 6th attack. Donald Trump has welcomed Hungary's President Viktor Orban to his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, ahead of the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, which opens today in Dallas, Texas. Trump scheduled to deliver closing remarks Saturday. Orban is speaking today. CPAC's warm welcome of Orban came just days after he delivered a speech in Romania that drew comparisons to Nazi rhetoric. There is a world in which European peoples are mixed together with those arriving from outside Europe. Now that is a mixed-race world. And then there is our world, where people from within Europe mix with one another. So far, none of the prominent conservatives scheduled to share the stage with Orban at CPAC have condemned the racist remarks. That includes far-right TV personalities Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck, Senator Ted Cruz, and Congress members Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and Jim Jordan. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. A top Justice Department official said Wednesday his agency has investigated more than a thousand threats to election workers over the past year. Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite told the Senate Judiciary Committee Wednesday that the pace of violent threats has increased sharply since former President Trump and his backers falsely claimed the 2020 election was rigged. Threats to the election community remain a national public safety issue requiring a national response, regardless of politics. The trauma experienced in this community is profound and unprecedented. The warning came a day after Trump-backed candidates who deny the results of the 2020 election won primary elections in Arizona and Michigan. The National Labor Relations Board has ordered a union of striking coal miners in Alabama to pay $13.3 million in damages to the Warrior Met Coal Company 16 months after they walked off the job to protest huge cuts to their pay, pensions and health care benefits. The NLRB cited the strike's financial toll on Warrior Met's labor and security costs, as well as, quote, lost revenues for unmined coal. In a statement, the United Mine Workers of America called the NLRB's ruling a slap in the face of work and said it has no intention of paying the fine. Union President Cecil Roberts said, quote, Is it now the policy of the federal government that unions be required to pay a company's losses as a consequence of their members exercising their rights as working people? This is outrageous and effectively negates workers' right to strike, he said. In more news from Alabama, a subsidiary of Hyundai has been accused of using child labor at a factory that produces parts for the Korean automaker. Reuters reports underage workers, in some cases as young as 12, recently worked at a metal stamping plant operated by Smart Alabama LLC, which supplies parts to Hyundai's flagship U.S. assembly plant in nearby Montgomery.
Labor advocates are sounding the alarm over a bipartisan House bill that would gut protections for workers in the gig economy. The Worker Flexibility and Choice Act would amend the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 to end minimum wage and overtime protections for workers at companies like DoorDash, Uber and Lyft. The National Employment Law Project warns the bill would, quote, radically erode fundamental worker protections in the United States to the benefit of big corporations, allowing them to require workers to sign away basic rights as a condition of work, unquote. The bill is co-sponsored by two House Republicans and Democratic Congressmember Henry Cuellar of Texas. In May, Cuellar defeated progressive primary challenger Jessica Cisneros by under 300 votes. After winning the endorsement of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic Majority Whip James Clyburn, who joined Cuellar on the campaign trail. And radical activist and longtime member of the Catholic worker movement, Tom Cornell, died August 1st at the age of 88. Cornell, who blended traditional Catholicism with radical activism, used his actions and writings for bringing Christian nonviolence and war resistance to the forefront of Catholic life. Cornell worked closely with Catholic worker founder Dorothy Day and was a co-founder of Pax Christi USA. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Democracy Now!, co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is warning the situation at Ukraine's largest nuclear plant, Zaporizhia, is, quote, completely out of control. In an interview with the Associated Press, Rafael Grossi said Tuesday, quote, every principle of nuclear safety has been violated at the plant. What is at stake is extremely serious and extremely grave and dangerous. In recent weeks, the Russian military has deployed heavy artillery batteries and laying anti-personnel landmines at the plant. Ukrainian officials say Russia is using the nuclear plant as a base for its artillery, knowing that Ukraine cannot attack a nuclear power plant without risking a nuclear disaster. Zaporizhia is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. We begin today's show with Sean Burney, senior nuclear specialist with Greenpeace, who's just returned from Ukraine, where he was conducting the investigation at Chernobyl, the site of the 1986 nuclear disaster. Russian forces occupied Chernobyl for a month immediately after the invasion of Ukraine began in February. Sean Burney, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the situation at Zaporizhia and what you found at Chernobyl? Well, thank you. Um, the situation at Zaporizhia, it's unusual for Greenpeace to agree with the International Atomic Energy Agency, but uh, Mr. Grossi is absolutely right to be deeply concerned. Um, the occupation began on the 4th of March, and since then, uh, hundreds of Russian forces, as well as state employees of the Russian nuclear state company, uh, Rosatom, have been on the site. Um, so that's bad enough. The fighting around the plant, if, if anything, is, is more serious in terms of what's actually going on at the site itself, because nuclear power plants are dependent upon uh, reliable off-site power. And already we saw in March and April the loss of so-called grid connection. These are incredibly important because nuclear plants also require electricity to maintain operations, to maintain the, the, the facilities for example, the cooling pumps that pump water into the reactors and keep the reactors relatively safe. And what we saw in March and April is a loss of grid, 
um, in a number of grid lines. And the reason for that was because of fighting 50, 60, 80 kilometers from the actual site. So even if nothing happens at the site itself, nuclear plants are extremely vulnerable to external attack and in, in the context of a war zone. And that's exactly what we are in the situation at the moment in southern Ukraine. And Sean, you've said uh, that it's uh, the situation, of course, is, is extremely high risk in Zaporizhia. But you've also suggested that the role of the International uh, Atomic Agency is uh, highly political. Could you explain why? It's a really complicated situation. Um, this is a nuclear plant in Ukraine, obviously, but it's under Russian military control with the Russian nuclear state agency Rosatom on site. And the IEA and Mr. Grossi have been trying to get access for a number of months. The problem is, if you, as an IEA, go to Zaporizhia, are you therefore getting that approval of the Russian state, the Russian government, to access a nuclear facility in another country that actually still is a sovereign nation and for which the Zaporizhia plant still belongs. So there's lots of behind-the-scenes tensions uh, in terms of whether the Russian state has any right to say to the IEA, yes, you can come and visit us. So the politics of this are really complicated. Um, it's not really clear to us what safety role the IEA would play. Um, we have Ukrainian nuclear employees working on the site. We have Russian military and we have Russian state nuclear uh, agency people. So what role does the IEA play in that? It has a safeguards function, which is to ensure that nuclear material is not diverted uh, for military purposes. But there's absolutely no evidence that any nuclear material on the Zaporizhia site would be diverted by the Ukrainian government at this stage. That's clearly ridiculous. Uh, and the Russians, they've got so many nuclear weapons and nuclear material in their own country, they don't need to divert from Zaporizhia. So it's not really clear what is going on with regards to the IEA's ambition to go there. I think in part it's also driven by Mr. Grossi's personal ambition. He seems to want to be seen as the saviour of everything. And actually the situation is a lot more serious than the individual ego of any one particular individual uh, at a UN agency. And Sean, we'll turn in a second to your uh, report, the Greenpeace report, uh, the investigation into the Chernobyl uh, plant, which Russian forces occupied uh, during their invasion for uh, over a month in the early days. Uh, but could you talk about what your concerns are with respect to Zaporizhia, people saying mm. uh, that it could actually, if the plant is damaged, uh, the situation could be worse than what happened at Chernobyl? Well, clearly, it's an intolerable situation that Russian military, Russian nuclear state employees are occupying Ukraine's nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. For the workers, for their families, uh, who, whose job it is to try and maintain the safe operation of those reactors, that's clearly an outrageous situation and it must be terminated and ended as soon as possible. The only way that can happen is for the Russians to withdraw immediately. Again, that's not going to happen. So what sort of scenarios are the most severe? Uh, the loss of cooling function to the reactor cores, there's three reactors out of six that are currently operating. That would be a major problem. We know that the uh, generators that provide emergency power at Zaporizhia have got a long-standing problems, not particularly reliable. The battery power is also extremely limited. Uh, so loss of power is, the, is really the most severe uh, issue that concerns us. Also at the site, there are thousands of tons of spent 
spent fuel. That's the highly radioactive fuel that comes out of the reactors. Much of that is in uh, dry stores, uh, which are of less concern. But the material that's in the pools, that's the swimming pools that are inside the reactor buildings, they need to be constantly cooled. Uh, which means that in the, the Zaporizhia site, you've got much more radioactivity than was ever released by Chernobyl uh, in a war zone uh, where the personnel are under direct military threat at all times. So the ability to respond to any event, particularly a more severe event like loss of, loss of cooling, uh, is ex extremely compromised. So at that point, you're looking at potential massive releases of radioactivity, potentially even greater than Chernobyl. That's not scaremongering. That's just the reality of having nuclear power plants uh, in a war zone. And on the issue of Chernobyl, talk more extensively about what you found in your report uh, that says that the damage at Chernobyl, as you said, is so much worse than we understood. So for a number of months, we've been in discussion with the Ukrainian government, um, and we had the opportunity, a unique opportunity, to actually conduct a survey, a uh, radiation survey, and also to meet with scientists whose responsibility is to manage and oversee this enormous exclusion zone around the nuclear plant from 1986, still highly complex, highly radioactive, uh, with many, many problems. And then the Russians occupied on the 24th of February, left on the 30th of March, uh, and the reports coming out at that time seemed to be confused. And so basically we went in there to, to, A, listen and hear from the scientists who experienced the occupation. And these are laboratories that are fulfilling vital safety work on radiation moving through the environment. This is an ongoing disaster site. And we clearly saw that the Russian military had damaged, destroyed parts of their laboratory, stolen databases, smashed computers, removed hard drives, but then we also went into the area uh, which they manage, it's 2,600 square kilometres, uh, and we were only able to go to one very small specific area because, unfortunately, the Russian military have also decided to place landmines throughout the territory, some of it organised and some of it completely chaotic, uh, trip wires, anti-personnel mines. So the impact for, on the scientists whose job it is to monitor radioactivity in the Chernobyl zone, also to provide warnings to firefighters. All of that has been compromised by the, the Russian military occupation. Um, what we found was that radioactivity levels, in particular one area where the Russian military were, uh, yes, it was high, but if you move only 500 metres away, it was many, many times higher. And so the idea that this is a situation under control, that the radiation levels are normal, which is what the IEA and Mr. Grossi communicated in April, is clearly not true. Um, and so the, the situation is incredibly complex. And, and basically turning this into soundbites saying that things are normal, it doesn't, doesn't give any information whatsoever. So we have some severe doubts about the accuracy of what the IEA was trying to communicate back in April. Uh, this is an ongoing crisis at the Chernobyl site. Uh, the, the workers, the scientists, the state agency, they need as much help as possible because this is of national and international significance in terms of what radioactivity is doing to the environment there uh, and what it potentially poses as further threats in the future. 
John Bernie of Greenpeace, I wanted to bring in Dr. Ira Helfand, the immediate past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize, also co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and serves on the International Steering Group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which also won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Dr. Helfand, as you listen to this report, Sean Bernie, just back from Ukraine, both about what's happening at Zaporizhia. Um, where the Russians are basing themselves there so the Ukrainians cannot attack because that would create a nuclear catastrophe, and his findings at Chernobyl. Your response? Well, you know, clearly the situation around the nuclear reactors in Ukraine is extremely worrisome, and it just underlines, as Sean was saying, the fact that these reactors are not designed to, to function in a war zone. Uh, and uh, it calls into question, I think, the entire nuclear power enterprise globally, because we just can't afford to run the risk of this kind of catastrophic accident occurring with the enormous public health implications that, that would follow from that. Um, tens of thousands of people uh, were, were exposed to doses of radiation from Chernobyl that led to them developing cancer and dying. Uh, the exact number is, is very difficult to come by, but the estimates are that it's at least in the tens of thousands and perhaps higher. And we can't afford to continue to operate these nuclear reactors uh, given those kinds of risks. Well, we want to thank Sean Burney for being with us. Uh, Sean Burney of Greenpeace, who's just back right now um, from uh, Ukraine, uh, where he investigated what took place at Chernobyl and is talking about the um, situation at Zaporizhia. And we'll link to your Greenpeace report, Investigation Inside the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. Dr. Helfand, we'd like you to stay with us uh, as we talk further about the threat of new nuclear war. Stay with us. Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me. So mad, feels like coagulating. I'm sitting here. Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. 
The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned this week humanity is, quote, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. He made the comments at the opening of a major U.N. gathering here in New York to review the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. The meeting comes at a time when tensions are escalating between the United States and two other nuclear powers, Russia and China. This is part of Antonio Guterres's remarks. The clouds that parted following the end of the Cold War are gathering once more. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. To today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We need the treaty of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons as much as ever. And that is why this review conference is so important. It's an opportunity to hammer out the measures that will help avoid certain disaster and to put humanity on a new path towards a world free of nuclear weapons. During his speech, the U.N. Secretary General also announced plans to visit Hiroshima, Japan, this week. Seventy-seven years ago, on August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the world's first atomic bomb on the Japanese city, killing an estimated 140,000 people. Two days later, the United States dropped another atomic bomb on Nagasaki. It was August 9, 1945, where at least 74,000 people died. To talk more about the threat of nuclear war, we're joined by two guests. Ziamin is with us, physicist, nuclear expert and disarmament activist, co-director of the program on science and global security at Princeton University, co-author of Unmaking the Bomb, a fissile material approach to nuclear disarmament and nonproliferation. Dr. Ira Helfand is with us as well, immediate past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, recipient of the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize, also co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, serves on the international steering group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. His new piece in The Hill is headlined, Are Russia and NATO Trying to Wreck the NPT? Dr. Ira Helfand, explain. Well, there have been multiple threats by Russia and some threats by NATO to use nuclear weapons in the context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is a totally unacceptable situation. In response to that, uh, my organization, IPPNW, organized a statement with 17 other Nobel Peace laureates demanding that Russia and NATO make an explicit pledge that they would not use nuclear weapons under any circumstances in the context of this war. They have refused to do that. Now they're coming into the MPT meeting demanding, as they always do, that the countries which don't have nuclear weapons continue to refrain from obtaining them, while they themselves will not even promise not to blow up the world this week. And it's an extraordinarily hypocritical situation, and I think it is the kind of behavior which has put the MPT at risk. Um, the great powers try to blame the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons uh, they try to identify that as a source of risk to the Non-Proliferation Treaty because 121 countries around the world have come together and said that they will not, they will honor their obligations under the NPT and not develop nuclear weapons. But the real threat to the NPT comes from the five permanent members of the Security Council, the NATO members, the United States, the UK and France, Russia and China, who are obliged under the NPT to 
enter into good faith negotiations to eliminate their nuclear arsenals and who have steadfastly refused for the last 50 years plus to honor that obligation. And that's the problem that we're facing. And the behavior of NATO and Russia in the Ukraine conflict has just underlined this total failure of the permanent members of the Security Council to uphold their part of the bargain inherent in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And I think that's what puts the treaty at risk. Uh, Dr. Ziamir, could you uh, comment uh, on your concerns about uh, what's going on at the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant, which is, of course, the largest in Europe and one of the largest in the world? The Zaporizhia nuclear plant, I mean, as Sean Burney mentioned in your earlier segment, and as Ira also observed, nuclear plants were never designed, intended, or imagined to be in war zones. They are dangerous enough, even in peacetime, given the history of nuclear accidents, complex technologies, institutional and human failures that we've seen throughout the history of all complex technologies. But what we've seen for more than 40 years now are attacks on nuclear power plants, It's worth remembering, 40 years ago, Israel attacked a nuclear reactor in Iraq, and that was the first attack on a nuclear reactor by another state. And during the Iran-Iraq war, reactors were attacked. And the reactor in Dimona in Israel was also attacked. And now we see nuclear reactors being attacked by cyber attacks also. So I think what we have to ask is not so much the details of a specific reactor in Zaporizhia and the war in Ukraine, but the fact of, can we feel safe in a world where these incredibly dangerous technologies coexist in a system where we can barely manage even ordinary technologies, never mind technologies with catastrophic failures, but ones in which states go to war and actually target not just cities and people, but also other kinds of industrial facilities, including nuclear reactors. And so, One of the things to keep in mind is that India and Pakistan long have lived with the threat of attacks on each other's nuclear facilities. And in 1988, they actually agreed a treaty between them to not attack each other's nuclear facilities because of fears of the consequences of such attacks. And this may be the kind of thing that other states should also pick up on and ask the question, until we can shut down all nuclear facilities safely and make sure that these problems can't recur in the future, at least we should have agreement not to attack them. You worked with your uh, colleagues at uh, Princeton earlier this year uh, on a simulation looking at what might happen in the event of an escalation, how a conventional war between the U.S. and Russia could turn into a nuclear one. Could you talk about that simulation and what you found? So several years ago, uh, the Princeton Program on Science and Global Security tried to think about how to understand what would be the consequences of current U.S., NATO, and Russian nuclear war plans as far as we could understand them. And so after thinking through what those war plans involved using publicly open sources and what we know about the number and locations of U.S. and uh, Russian nuclear weapons the postures, the targets, uh, we actually tried to then go through step by step of what would happen in a conventional war 
um, which escalated first with the use of one nuclear weapon on the battlefield to then retaliation to then escalation to a second stage of a larger use of nuclear weapons by both sides, then to all out nuclear war and the consequences that would follow. And it found that, you know, within a matter of a few hours, there would be the better part of 100 million uh, casualties. And the U.S. Strategic Command accepts publicly that all of their nuclear war exercises, they are on record, all of their nuclear war exercises end in all-out global thermonuclear war. So the war plans they have always end up with the end of the world. And so that's what we were trying to explore, and that's what we were trying to explain. And Zia, I mean, um, during the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, France, the U.K., and the U.S. issued a statement saying, nuclear weapons, for as long as they exist, should serve defensive purposes, deter aggression and prevent war. We condemn those who would use or threaten to use nuclear weapons for military coercion, intimidation, and blackmail. Your response? This is basically the U.S., France, and the U.K. saying— our nuclear weapons are good, your nuclear weapons are bad. Even though, as we all know, the US and the UK and France make nuclear threats, it's called nuclear deterrence. The very practice of nuclear deterrence is military coercion, intimidation and blackmail. It's just that when we do it, we call it deterrence. When they do it, you call it for what it is, which is coercion, intimidation and blackmail. And Daniel Ellsberg, bless him, pointed this out back in the 1950s in a famous lecture on coercion and blackmail in the nuclear age, saying that nuclear weapons fundamentally, except during times of active war when they are exploded, are instruments for the threat of nuclear war. They are, in tight, they are intended to be instruments of coercion, intimidation and blackmail. So... All I think we need to do is to accept the fact that for the first time, these three weapon states have recognized at least the fact that nuclear weapons are about coercion, intimidation and blackmail. It's just the rest of us understand this applies to everybody's nuclear weapons. Yeah, finally, uh, earlier this year, you uh, attended the Vienna Conference uh, of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Talk about the significance of that treaty, why it was formed to begin with, and what the substance of the discussions were. So the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is the first international treaty that bans nuclear weapons absolutely and unconditionally. And it also is the first and only treaty that bans the use and even the threat of use of nuclear weapons. If we had actually had the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons in force with the U.S. and Russia and so on involved, there would have been no question of the threat of use of nuclear weapons by anybody. And the origins of this treaty go back to the beginning of the nuclear age. This was the first decision ever made by the United Nations in 1946. Before anything else, they said we need a plan for the elimination of nuclear weapons. What this treaty does which entered into force in 2021, was to basically fulfill that first goal of the United Nations system. We now have an international legal instrument that bans nuclear weapons and bans the use and the threat of use of nuclear weapons. And in Vienna, the countries that came together uh, as members of this treaty um, actually made a statement specifically talking about 
the threat and use of nuclear weapons as we see it today. And that, so they said that this, this threat and use of nuclear weapons, including by Russia and by anyone under any circumstances, is a violation of international law, is a violation of the UN Charter, and should be condemned explicitly and implicitly and irrespective of the circumstances. So you couldn't ask for a clearer statement against the threat of nuclear weapons, unlike the kind of statement that we saw that you asked about from France, the UK and the US, which says our nuclear threats are okay, everybody else's threats are bad. And finally, Dr. Helfand, um, the U.N. Secretary General heads to Hiroshima uh, for the 77th anniversary of the U.S. dropping the first atomic bomb in the world on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, followed by the dropping of the second bomb on Nagasaki on August 9, Um If you could comment um, on um, his comments saying we are closer to nuclear annihilation than ever, he'll be meeting with Habakusha, that's Hiroshima bomb survivors and young activists, and also whether you think what's happening with the increased tensions with Ukraine, um, Russia and China are, um, and now bringing Finland and Sweden into NATO, are uh, escalating tension. Well, I think the tensions clearly are escalating, and we are closer to nuclear war than we've ever been. And we need to recognize that, you know, the song that you played earlier in the show, uh, you don't believe we're on the uh, eve of destruction. That's the problem. We, we don't believe it because it is such a horrible reality that we're confronting. But we better start believing it because it's true. Fortunately, we have to also understand this is not the future that needs to be. There's nothing that makes nuclear destruction inevitable. It's not as though you know, we're dealing with some force of nature that we have no control over. We know how to take these weapons apart, and we need to do that. And, <clears throat> excuse me, here in the United States, we've launched a, a national campaign called Back from the Brink to try to force the United States government to uh, change its nuclear policy in a fundamental way, to recognize that nuclear weapons do not make the world secure. They are the greatest threat to security, and they need to be eliminated. And to get the United States to play the role which it should, initiating negotiations with the other nuclear armed states for a specific, verifiable, enforceable, time-bound agreement so that they will come to eliminate their weapons, so they will meet their obligations under Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and meet their obligations under the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And at the current session of the NPT in New York, I think it's incredibly important that the non-nuclear weapon states hold the permanent members of the Security Council accountable, that they demand that NATO and Russia, in fact, issue a statement pledging they will not use nuclear weapons in the context of the war in Ukraine. And they go beyond that and demand that all five members of the Security Council's P5, the permanent members, begin now, during this meeting in New York, the negotiations to eliminate their nuclear weapons, as they have promised to do for 50 years, and that they bring in the other four nuclear armed states into that process. And that can happen. This is not some fantasy. This is practically what needs to happen if we're going to survive. And the leaders of the great powers, Biden, Xi, and Putin, need to sit down with themselves and recognize the fact that the policies they are pursuing are going to lead to the end of the world that we know.
they're playing this game of chicken, this game of king of the mountain. See who's going to come out on top of the of, of, of the struggle for power and wealth in the world. <clears throat> and they don't seem to understand that while there may be a winner, the mountain that that person ends up sitting on is going to be an ash heap. What's left of our civilization because they're destroying it. And they need a totally different approach. They need to understand that to deal with the nuclear threat, to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with the future pandemics that we will experience, they need to cooperate. They need to work together or else none of us are going to survive. Dr. Ira Halfan, we thank you for being with us, immediate past president, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, Nobel Prize-winning organization. We'll also link to your piece in The Hill, Are Russia and NATO Trying to Wreck the NPT? And thanks also to Zia Min, the co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University. Coming up, we look at them why the American right is embracing Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban. Uh, who is addressing CPAC today. That's the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is taking place in Dallas, Texas. Stay with us. Jessica Pratt. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Donald Trump's welcomed Hungary's President Viktor Orban to his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, ahead of the Conservative Political Action Conference, known as CPAC, which opens today in Dallas, Texas. Trump's delivering closing remarks Saturday. Orban is speaking today. CPAC's warm welcome of Orban comes just days after he delivered a racist speech in Romania, criticizing what he called race mixing in other European countries. There is a world in which European peoples are mixed together with those arriving from outside Europe. Now that is a mixed race world. And then there is our world, where people from within Europe mix with one another. Orban's comments sparked outcry even from within his own government. One longtime aide resigned, describing Orban's remarks as a, quote, pure Nazi text worthy of Goebbels. Budapest chief rabbi Zoltan Radnodi also criticized Orban's remarks. 
We cannot accept in any way the kind of communications that includes talking about races, pure races, and mixing of races. Within the Jewish community, this evokes a very painful era and painful memories. So far, none of the prominent conservatives scheduled to share the stage with Viktor Orban at CPAC have condemned his racist remarks, including the far-right TV personality Sean Hannity, uh, who did a week of programs from Hungary uh, and interviewed Orban there, and Glenn Beck, Senator Ted Cruz, Congress members Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and Jim Jordan. To talk more about Hungary and the American rights obsession with Viktor Orban, we're joined by Kim Lane Shepley. She's a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University, specializing in the rise and fall of constitutional government, focusing in particular on Hungary. So we're going to talk about Hungary and here right through to the insurrection, Professor Shepley. But start with Orban's speech today and his significance. Well, Orban's speech, uh, what you were playing, was one paragraph out of a speech that went on for an hour and 15 minutes. So it wasn't as prominent in the speech as the international press attention. But still, it was a shocker for Hungarians, because for the first time, Orban used language that had not been heard since the 1930s and 40s. And he used a word in Hungarian that was the word that was that referred to Jews at that time. So it's no wonder that you're getting this reaction from both one of his advisors uh, who quit, who was one of his few advisors who was Jewish, as well as from the rabbi you quoted from, from Hungary. I might say that um, it'll tell you something about Orban's Hungary, that when Zsuzsa Hegedush, his advisor, quit, Orban then wrote this letter, you know, dear Zsuzsa, we've known each other forever. You know, I'm not a racist. And within a few days, she said, oh, yes, Victor, I know you're not a racist. And she offered to come back. So it will tell you something about Orban's Hungary that criticism never lasts long and he manages to squelch it quite quickly. He's a dictator, which is a bigger, you know, which is an additional problem, I guess, in addition to his racism. And, of course, what counts, though, is what he's doing um, in, in terms of—I mean, it counts a lot in Hungary, of course. But yeah. uh, the fact that the American right, CPAC, has invited him today to give this major speech on the opening day. Exactly. Well, I think one of the reasons why Orban used that language in Hungary is that he knew he was coming to CPAC. And Orban is quite well informed. He'll understand that a lot of Trump's base— loves dog whistle or even not so subtle racism. He, Orban will understand perfectly well that white supremacists form a big chunk of Trump's base. And frankly, I think Orban was playing at least as much to this American audience as he was playing to the Hungarian audience when he gave that speech. If you've been following Orban since he came back to power in 2010, and he's, he's been in power continuously since that time because he's rigged the elections so no one else can win them, uh, it turns out that he's been saying these kinds of things about mixing of races for a long time. Um, he dog whistles anti-Semitism. One of his political campaigns, he was demonizing George Soros with a lot of language that was clearly anti-Semitic. Um, he's the guy who stood up against the wave of migration from Syria and Iraq and other places, um, making references to a kind of another Islamic invasion of Europe. So none of this is really new. The thing that was new was the use of that particular language. And that means that CPAC could not possibly be surprised that Orban is going to come and dog whistle white nationalism. 
Professor Sheppel, could, could we talk? I mean, you've just said uh, a little bit now uh, about his record and the fact that he's been in power for over 15 years, 12 of them consecutively since 2010. What do you think uh, accounts for his appeal? As you've pointed out, he's a lawyer, um, but he has appeal far beyond Hungary. I mean, as, as you've said, that, that the elections are, are rigged in Hungary. So the fact that he's remained in power is not an indication of how much support he has. But why is he supported uh, or why have people abroad also expressed an interest in him foremost, of course? Uh, Trump. Well, of course, Trump loves winners, and Orban, you know, is a winner of every election he's uh, he's been engineering. But I think that Orban presents, especially for the American right, a kind of irresistible combination of culture war issues. So now we see racism, white nationalism. But in the past, he's demonized LGBTQ people. He's he's railed against gender studies and gender fluidity. When he rewrote the Constitution of Hungary in 2011, uh, the Constitution says that fetal life is protected from the moment of conception. So he's been on every single culture war issue for the last dozen years that also has been, you know, the program of the American right. So the culture wars are really Orban's specialization to kind of whip up hysteria. The thing is, though, that these culture war issues in Hungary disguise the fact that underneath the surface, Orban has been changing the laws of the country so that gradually he has shut down all of the independent institutions that might tell him no. And in fact, since the um, COVID epidemic started, he's been governing by decree. He wakes up one morning, issues a decree, that's law. So essentially, Hungary is now a country that is a dictatorship in which he's rigged the election laws. He's rigged almost all the other laws. And I think what the American right sees in him is the use of culture wars as a kind of cover for creeping autocracy. And you see it because the Republicans are right now engaged in a campaign, a very Orban-like campaign, to rig the rules of the election by changing laws in the U.S. states so that the Republicans are going to win no matter who wins the popular vote. That's the kind of thing Orban did in Hungary. Some of the specific tactics the Republicans are using here exactly mirror what Orban did in Hungary. So I think, you know, come for the racism, stay for the autocracy. I think that's what's in it for CPAC. Professor Shepley, you've called him uh, the, quote, ultimate 21st century dictator. He himself uh, uh, refers to himself as a Christian Democrat. Could you explain what the significance of this is and how it fits into the European tradition of Christian democracy? I mean, most recently, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel came from the Christian Democratic Party. Yes. So let me start with Christian democracy and back into dictatorship. So um, Orban's political party uh, is called Fides, and it's associated at European level with the European People's Party, which is the Christian Democratic Party in Europe that Angela Merkel's party was also involved in. And because Orban's party was, was in that Christian Democratic European party, those people, including especially Angela Merkel, have acquiesced in Orban's rise to power because they saw him as an ally. So Christian democracy is this incredibly useful cover for Orban because it gave him protection in the EU because other Christian democratic leaders for a long time thought he was one of them because of his public rhetoric. Now, 
you know, Orban is, you know, like Trump, Orban has the support of evangelicals and conservative Christians without ever setting foot in church. Um, and in fact, in Orban's first couple of years in power, he presided over taking the number of registered religious organizations in Hungary, sort of churches and synagogues and mosques, etc. There were 350 of those. And in his first year, he cut them down to 32. And by removing the tax-exempt status from the others, he literally pushed hundreds of mostly small evangelical Christian denominations out of the country. So you can decide for yourself whether that looks like Christian democracy. But on the question about dictatorship and being the ultimate 21st century dictator, you know, I think that when we think about dictatorships, we have in mind, you know, Hitler, Stalin. They come with big ideology and they repress their populations. In fact, the modern human rights movement really grew out of a list of the you know, horrible things that were done under those dictatorships. So what's a 21st century dictatorship? Well, it governs in a very different kind of way. So first of all, you know, the mass human rights violations that we saw in the 20th century are not Orban's stock in trade. In fact, if anything, what he does is he exerts economic pressure against his opponents. And of course, in a world that's been made safe for capitalism, economic interests are not protected by rights. So if you lose your job, if your business goes under, if you're denied social welfare benefits, if there's no unemployment insurance, you can't claim any of those things as a matter of right. But you can certainly feel pressure if the government controls all of those things and keeps you in line with these kinds of economic pressures. So Orban has kind of analyzed these 20th century dictatorships and stepped into all of these places that, you know, still allow him to exercise this immense pressure on the people that he's trying to control without ever stepping over the line of violating human rights. So that makes him a very different kind of dictator. Professor, um, uh, last year, Fox News host Tucker Carlson took a show to Hungary. I had said it was Sean Hannity, but it was Carlson, uh, where yes. uh, Tucker Carlson repeatedly praised Orban's immigration policies, is what he said. That is exactly why Democrats become hysterical when you mention the obvious successes that are on display here in Hungary on the immigration question. They don't want you to know that there is an option to the chaos and filth and crime growing all around us. We don't have to live like that anymore. Actually, we could have a functioning country. So if you can uh, comment on this um, and the whole white nationalist um, trend in the United States, um, some of the people actually modeling themselves on Orban as Orban followers. Yeah, in fact, it's exactly on immigration that you see the sharpest parallels, you know, between Orban and Trump. So, you know, if you know the, the, what Trump did to stop immigration, he first built a wall. Well, Viktor Orban first built a fence. Then Trump pushes the people who are seeking asylum back across the border to wait in this kind of limbo before they can get into the country. Orban set up these things he called transit zones, which, again, were a kind of limbo as people awaited, um, uh, you know, entry. The, the similarities between Trump and Orban are so extreme that there was even a point about six months before the U.S. started doing it when Orban started separating parents and children. Now, they didn't lose track of which parents were connected to what kids, as happened here, but they decided that they had no human rights obligation to feed the parents in these transit camps. But they did have an international obligation to feed the children. We have 10 so seconds, took, Professor. Oh, yeah. They took the children 
fed them and then brought them back to their parents so the kids couldn't share food. So all of that was stuff Trump copied. Well, Professor Kim Lane Shepley, professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University, specializing in the rise and fall of constitutional government, focusing on Hungary. That does it for our show. We'll do part two with Professor Shepley and post online at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.